word apologetic comes from a Greek word which literally means to give a rational, illogical defense of, of our faith, right? Because sometimes it seems like things like rationality and logic and faith are opposites. But actual fact, they're not. If God is good and God exists, then why do good people suffer? Why is there death? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Secularism basically says there is no God. There is no spirituality. There is nothing beyond this. What you feel, what you see, what you taste, what you can buy, that is reality. There is no God, therefore there is no spirituality. All things are physical. People now in 21st century Ireland are just as, if not even more spiritual than ever before. Of course, it may not take its form in, in a tradition, traditional sense of going to a church, but people are open. People are meditating. People are looking for inner peace. People are communicating with the afterlife. All these thoughts are spiritual thoughts. What we're doing is we're answering skeptics' challenges, skeptics' problems to Christianity. And uh, maybe you're on the fringe and you're wondering, you're questioning, and you're debating, and you're doubting. Well, this series is also specifically for you. Well, hello everyone, and a massive Cade, Mila, Falcher, Kachuk, Solis, and Bali Ahaklia, Jamie's Anam Dum, and we're so delighted that you're with us this morning in church, recording from our Navin location today, uh, and still being able to be with you is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And if you're new, you're especially welcome. You've kind of joined us at a kind of cool but also crazy time, as we're part two of a series that we're doing called The Problem of God. And really why we're doing this series is we're trying to give a rational, logical, reasonable explanation for why we believe the things that we believe from, elect, from an intellectual position and also address some of the major pushbacks and the major questions that skeptics have when it comes to the problem, as in the question, the reason, the query uh, of God. Last week in week one, we kind of looked at this false dichotomy of how science and Christianity are juxtaposed and somehow, you know, incongruent, cannot work together. So if you missed that message, make sure to go back and watch it online. And today in part two, I'm going to be tackling one of the most controversial, one of the most sticky issues around the question, problem of God, faith and church. I'm going to talk to you about the problem of hypocrisy, but heads up, do not miss next week because we're going to be in hell. Not literally, but we're gonna, we're gonna, the next subject that we're going to tackle is the subject of hell. Then in week four, we're going to go for the big one, what many call the rock of atheism. We're going to talk about evil and suffering. God is a good God. Then how can there be so much evil and suffering in the world? Well, today in part two, let's jump straight in. We're dealing with the subject of hypocrisy. Now, when we think about hypocrisy, this is one of the most, most um, used, most popular pushbacks for people out of the church when it comes to the Christian message, Christ and his people. Really, when you ask people in general, why do you reject Christianity? If I asked you personally right now, why do you reject Christianity? If you're here, you're not a Christ follower and you're a skeptic, again, we're glad you're here. But if you're just, just asking you openly, if you, if you reject the Christian message, then why? Then usually speaking, what, top of the list for most people is the whole problem of hypocrisy. In a... Uh, in a research, in research that was conducted by the Barner Group in 2007, that was designed to to kind of ascertain why people reject Christianity, the research found that 87 percent of people rejected Christianity. Number one, because of judgmentalism, because Christians are judgmental people. But 85 percent, in a hot second, said because of hypocrisy. That one of the reasons why I cannot get around, or I cannot feel welcome, or I cannot embrace Christ or their Christian message, is because people who are called Christians or call themselves Christian are judgmental, and they are hypocritical. Now, even though that's a really like harsh thing to, to realize, if you're here like me and you're a person of faith and you're, you're really trying to get people to see the good news of Jesus, like, this is a really uh, harsh reality. However, what's really interesting for the sake of our series right now is that the top reasons that were uh, captured in the, in the data were not evidential reasons, 
but actually moralistic. I mean, as we're trying to, in this series, rationally and scientifically and, and as logically as we can wrestle with big questions of, of science and faith and life and purpose and reason and meaning, what's really interesting from this data is that most people's pushback against Christianity wasn't evidential, it wasn't philosophical, but actually it was moralistic in nature. And again, I understand this because a lot of people feel, we're feeling beings, we have emotions, and most of us connect with each other at that level. And when we perceive that people who say they believe something don't live up to the thing that they say they're believing in, there's a disconnect. It's like the author and theoretical physicist Steven Weinberg said, he said, good people will do good things. Bad people will do bad things. But for good people to do bad things, that takes religion. I can feel that slap on the head. And it's true. I mean, we know this. Terrible things have been done all throughout history in the name of God. Terrible things have happened. People have done terrible things to other people uh, and claim the reason why they're doing these terrible things was for the sake of or directed by or to be obedient to or to bring glory to God. Examples that I come across oftentimes in conversations with ordinary people in the street are things like the Crusades. Like, man, my goodness, what those people did, even wearing crosses and praying before going to battle. And we, if, if you ever watched The Kingdom of Heaven, come on, uh, Orlando Bloom, it's like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. What about 9-11? I mean, not the Christian God, but still a terrible thing that was done in the name of God. Or even, you know, more you know, recently and even closer to home, what about in Ireland? I mean, all the division and the troubles that went on in the north for uh, over 30 years. I mean, all these things have been characterized in the media and in popular culture as being religious wars. These are people fighting because of religion. So the question we got to ask ourselves is, is if, if we're uh, people of faith or Christ followers in the room is, well, what do we do with all these skeptics pushbacks? Maybe you're like me, you found yourself in the canteen at lunchtime at work or chatting to a friend in, on the bus or just in a conversation over coffee and these things come up and man, it feels like, oh, it got really hot all of a sudden. I mean, like, like how do we respond to all these push, pushbacks? And to help us kind of as Christ followers answer this, to help us tackle the problem of hypocrisy, and maybe you're here or watching online and you are someone who's skeptical, to help you wrestle with this subject, I want to give you five points. They all start with A, <coughs> so it's easy to remember. Uh, number one, we're going to look at how we need to admit it. Number two, how we need to address it. Number three, that we need to analyze it. Number four, that we need an apologetic for, I'll explain that word later. And that number five, fifth and finally, that we need an application for. And again, all of today's notes, everything I'm, I'm speaking about, everything on the, on the screen will be in the Bible app, by you version, download the app, the right hand corner, click more, click events, find Lighthouse Church Dublin, and all of today's notes will be there for you. Okay, number one, the first thing we need to do to tackle the problem of Christianity is we need to admit it. Now I'm speaking, of course, primarily in this instance, to those of us in the room who are Christ followers. To those who might describe ourselves as having a faith or even or even being religious. The bottom line is, guys, people, people in the past, people even recent, people even presently, who are supposed to represent God, have done horrific things to other people. And in our modern day culture, modern people contend that the greatest proof against the existence of God isn't proof itself, but it's actually the behavior of Christians themselves. And it's true. It's true that if we're going to have any voice or any relevance or any credibility or influence in our culture, we can't turn our back and close our eyes and pretend like things didn't happen. It's true that we need to own the mess that comes with our Christian past. We need to own the mess that we find ourselves in some instances in the present and and in particular, we need to own that mess by doing three things. A, we need to take responsibility. Words appropriate and words relevant, because it isn't always. Sometimes it's because we're, we're accused of doing certain things. It doesn't mean we were. But there are a lot of cases where we, we should take responsibility. Like we, people did bad things in the name of God, and it was wrong. It was wrong, and it was wrong, and it was wrong. And with that responsibility comes, B, repentance. And the word repentance is actually a, a biblical word, and it comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to have a, have a, have a massive change of mind, to, to turn like 180, to, to, rather than turning our backs to the, to the past and to hide it, by facing it, like, like people with dignity and conviction, like people of faith should, 
and, and repenting from what has happened in the past. And C, we should also remember. We should remember. We should remember as people of faith that Jesus often spoke most candidly and most severely and most challengingly to those who were inside the circle, those who were religious, those who were supposed to know more. I mean, some of the harshest things Jesus ever said in the Gospels weren't directed at sinners or outsiders or non-believers. The harshest things Jesus had to say were always pointed at the supposed insiders. And we need to understand there's a warning attached to this, that we as people of faith need to own the mistakes that we made and need to take, when it's appropriate and when it's relevant, responsibility for, for horrific things that were done in the name of God. But beyond just, just uh, admitting it, we also need to address it because with, and this is where it gets quite delicate, and I'm going to say a couple of controversial things, so if you're asleep, wake up. <laughs> because, because in the accusations of what has happened, there's also a lot of, you know, mythology, a lot of opinion, a lot of unbased, unscientific, non-historical fact-based uh, accusations, but popular opinions. And, and we need to address the root and the core, especially for today's talk, if we're going to really tackle the problem of hypocrisy. And I want to say a couple of really challenging and controversial things. So if you brought your gun, gum shield today, put it in and get ready. Number one, not everyone who goes to church is a Christian. Not everyone who attends church regularly, and I say go to church, I don't mean like you did today, just shows up. I mean not everyone who participates in worship, who you know, applies the message, who prays, who gives, who serves, not everyone who is doing the church thing is necessarily a Christian. Not only that, but not everyone who is called a Christian is a Christian. Because the word Christian comes from Christ. Therefore, the ultimate definition of what makes a Christian should come from Christ himself. And Christ defines very clearly in the Gospels in particular, and the Apostle Paul kind of, kind of builds out that truth in his epistles, what a Christ follower is like. And Jesus said himself in Matthew 7, that by the fruit that those who claim to follow me produce, you should be able to tell if they're really Christians. And oftentimes, here's what happens, people who call themselves Christians but don't produce the fruit of Christianity, we call those people hypocrites, aren't actually Christians at all. In fact, what most of us have experienced growing up online in the world as Christianity is in actual fact cultural Christianity. It's the result of people who grew up with a faith. And again, we thank God for parents who raised us in some kind of faith, especially if it was the Christian faith. And even though most of us watching right now in the room who grew up in Ireland would have been raised in the Catholic faith or at least the Anglican faith, you know, even though there's, there's good in those things, there's, there's, there's values and there's, there's truth in the roots of those things, most of us, if we're really honest right now, and even some of you watching right now who are skeptics and, and aren't Christ followers, most of us grew up with inheriting, we were born, into a type of cr cultural Christianity that we had no connection to, we had no value for, we wanted nothing to do with, nor did we or do we even believe in it. Yeah, we go to church for, you know, our, our nephew or niece's uh, baptism. Yeah, we'll go for a confirmation, our communion. Yeah, we'll raise our kids in the church because, hey, that's what everyone else says. Yeah, of course, when someone dies, we'll go to Mass and be there at the funeral. But, but what's said and the purpose and the structure and the meaning has no real relevance in our lives. And this is really dangerous because when you have a generation or a nation of people who, who on paper are called Christian, like, I mean, people said for years, Ireland, Ireland was a Christian nation. Like, what does that mean? I mean, go out in a town on a Friday night and show me Christianity in Ireland. There isn't a, there isn't a lot of Christianity to be seen in the clubs and bars and streets of the towns and cities in our country on a Friday or Saturday night. And what happens is, is that creates this, this tension where people are out doing things that aren't very Christian on the weekend and then go to Mass slash church on Sunday and all of a sudden there's this like this magical thing that happens and they're all okay. And most of us, even though we don't want to judge and don't want to be hypocritical ourselves, most of us have a problem with that. Because like, hey, be one or be the other, but don't pretend to be one while being the other. And part of the reason why this tension exists is because what's seeped into our, into our philosophy, into our worldview, 
inter-understanding because of cultural Christianity is that Christians, by definition, are good people. To be a Christian means you're a good person and you're a good person all the time. If you're like me and you're raised uh, in the late 80s, 90s, the, the definition, I mean, the, the epitome of Christianity was characterized in, in Ned Flanders in the, in the TV show Simpsons, right? I mean, Oakley Doakley neighbor, I mean, just perfect person who always did things good, who always did things right. And of course, if you watch many scenes like I did, he was just as screwed up and just in trouble and just in need as anywhere else. I was almost like, aha, you see? Christians are, you know, you're supposed to be good people, but behind all the facade and all the judgmentalism and all the looking down, good Christians aren't good people. But in that is actually an interesting fact and truth that Christianity, by definition, does not equal good person. Because if Christianity is the good news that Jesus came to give up his life for those of us in the world who were lost and broken, then good people don't need the good news of a savior. Good Good people need a good employee of the month award. Good people need a bula bus. Good people need a badge or a medal or some kind of recognition, some kind of like following on TikTok or Instagram. Good people don't need Jesus. But here's what we miss. Here's what we miss growing up, whether it's in Africa or Ireland, in cultural Christianity. We miss the fact that Christianity, at its truest form, according to Jesus, the Christ Christianity, is not a works-based achievement thing. It's not about us being good and earning from God. It's about God being good and giving to us that which we could not earn and do not deserve. The gospel did not come to us to make bad people good, the gospel came to make dead people alive. The power of the gospel is not in its ability to regulate our behavior and make us good boys and good little girls. The, the power of the gospel is in its, 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 its ability to completely transform a human heart, to completely transform a human life, to bring hope, help, and healing to the lost, the hurting, and the broken. The Christian gospel is not based on the lifestyle of its followers. No, the Christian gospel is based on the sacrifice of its founder. I mean, in its truest sense, if you want to judge the merits of Christianity, you shouldn't judge it by the hypocrisy of those who claim to follow, although that is a factor, I understand, and is a point of tension, but rather the sacrifice and the example of the founder. Besides, let's be honest, we need to know that that, that, that if there was a church that existed for perfect people, it's not for people like us. And if there is a perfect church full of perfect people, we wouldn't like it. Why? Because perfect people, by definition, are judgmental because they're perfect, right? And so none of us want a perfect church, and the church isn't for perfect people because, because if the church is, as, we, as, as Jesus described to be, a place for broken, hurting people, then perfect people don't belong, church and the Christian message in the gospel is not for the best of us, but for the broken. Jesus didn't come for the best, he came for the broken. And besides, let's be honest, everyone's on a journey. I mean, you wouldn't like people judging you, right, because of your journey. You wouldn't like people witnessing you having a meltdown in the supermarket, or you having a difficult moment with your kids, or you having a bad day at work. I'm making like a judgmental uh, summary of your whole life just because of a bad moment or soundbite of your journey. You'd be like, hey man, cut me some slack. I'm on a journey. In the same way, many people who claim to be Christian aren't Christian. And even those who are, because they're actively engaged in following Jesus, they're not perfect. Christian people aren't good people. Christian people are broken people who are in need of a good God. And Christian people in need of a good God are on a journey to love, follow and serve him. And I suppose what I'm trying to say here is that we shouldn't dismiss the destination because of the messiness of the journey or the messiness of the journey of those who follow. It was Leo, Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author and philosopher who said, attack me rather than the path I follow at which I point out to anyone who asks me where I think it lies. If I know the way home, and I'm walking along it drunkenly, is it any less the right way because I am staggering from side to side? In other words, what Tolstoy is trying to say is, just because he's not doing a good job of getting to the right place, doesn't mean he has discovered the way home. 
And again, I mean, I, I come across all the time people think, yeah, but the church is supposed to be this, this vanguard, this standard. You know, the church, if, if the church is full of broken people like me, then what's the point? Well, the point is, is the church is full of broken people and the person that we look up to, the person that we hold to, the person that we put our faith in isn't the pastor or priest or other human beings, for goodness sake. It's the person of Jesus. This is why the church is not a country club of picturesque, perfect people, but the church is like a triage room in a hospital. The church is a hospital for people who are lost and broken and hurting and need help and healing. I remember a couple of years ago, a number of years ago, something funny happened in our church that kind of drove this point home for me. We used to uh, have people, because our church was growing at the time, uh, park all over the place, and some people would park in residential areas where they were not, uh, were not were asked not to park. And eventually one resident got sick of this, came out and confronted a person who was coming into Lighthouse Church this Sunday morning. And I suppose they were expecting in their kind of rebuttal of this person for parking on their street, some kind of you know messianic, Jesus-like, awe-inspiring, golden halo, like, oh, I'm sorry, brother, I shall move my car. But in actual fact, what happened was this person actually got in a verbal skirmish that ended up becoming a fight about who had rights to park on the street. Well, this uh, neighbor was less than satisfied and chose to write a letter to the church. And when one of the team came to me and said, oh my gosh, what should we do about this letter? I mean, look what it says. And basically in this letter, the neighbor was saying, pointing out, hey, you're supposed to be the church. I mean, I talked to someone who was going into your building and they got an argument with me. I mean, shame on you. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And of course, my team were like, oh my gosh, freaking out. Like, what should we do? This is terrible. Someone said a bad word against us. And I was like, you know what? Good. And they were like, what do you mean good? I was like, good. I was like, how is this good? I said, because we don't know who that person is. Yeah, we might assume it was me, the pastor, right? Could, hey, maybe it was me. But maybe it was someone who this is their first time ever coming to church. Maybe they were broken. Maybe they were hurting. Maybe they were sick and tired of being pushed around. Maybe they were on edge. Maybe something was collapsing in or around them that caused them in that moment to be mean. And by no means am I justifying their behavior or their meanness. But I'm saying if people like that are coming to our church, if people like you right now who are hurt and broken, if people who are nothing like Jesus are coming to Jesus, then I believe we're being like Jesus. Because when you read the Gospels, my friend, it wasn't the people who were religious or, or insiders that, that followed Jesus. It was people who were nothing like him that liked him and followed him. And so if we're somehow helping people and reaching broken people, then I think that's a good thing. And if not, if it was someone from our church who had that moment good too because that gives us an opportunity to pastor people towards Christ to be like him in word and deed to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Either way for me it's a win-win because the point is church is not a country club for perfect people. Church is a spiritual hospital for the lost and broken. And again, we just need to, we just need to understand that the gospel and the good news that Jesus came to proclaim isn't the good news about how we can do good work and be good people and earn God's favor. I mean, if the gospel is about what we can do for God, then the gospel, in essence, is good advice. Do this and do that. Don't do the other. Don't do this. Ten commandments. Live like this, and then you will be a good person, and God will be good to you. But the gospel is not about what we can do for God. The gospel is what God has done for us. And more than good advice, it is good news. It is good news that we don't have to be perfect. It is good news that Jesus lived a perfect life and died a perfect death because we can't. And God doesn't want us to either. God has not called us to be perfect. God has called us to be part of a relationship with him and to follow him through his son Christ Jesus. We need to admit it, we need to address number three, we also need to analyze it because again as we break it down there's a lot of cultural popularistic misconceptions about some of the things I even mentioned in the introduction. Like I said the whole purpose of this series people say oh the church and it's all just you know believe and you know don't don't use your brain don't use the faculties of intellect and you know you have to switch off you have to be stupid to be a christian no 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 the whole approach of this series is that we want to we want to 
you know, take this time rationally, logically, to have as much as possible an evidence-based conversation with the merits of the Christian message and in light of hypocrisy. So if we're going to analyze the pushback of hypocrisy, we must examine the facts to be able to eject the mythology. We have to examine the facts and eject the mythology. It was the Oxford professor, Alistair McGraw, who said, one of the greatest tasks confronting the church today is to rescue Christianity from misunderstandings. I mean, there's so many popularistic misunderstandings towards Christianity. Many people use against, many people use as their defense, as their motive for not being able to be open to, maybe even you watching right now or in the room right now, this is one of the reasons why you push back to be able to be open to Christ. And again, let me give you three of the main examples that I come across all the time when I talk to people. Figure point one, I've already mentioned it, the Crusades. I mean, when people watch movies like Kingdom of Heaven, which you know, brilliantly pr- portrays the, you know, the, the reality of that history, it's like, man, how could people who you know, bear the cross and pray and go to church and call themselves, how can these people do the kind of things they did? Like they did that thousands of people were killed in the name of Christ. Very closely linked to the Crusades is, of course, the Inquisition, especially the Spanish Inquisition, where, again, thousands of people were falsely accused and executed, even burnt alive, just because they wouldn't submit to the authority of the church in, in their day. And again, it's really important when we study both these instances, historically speaking, we have to note that the Crusades and the Inquisition were, were, were draped and were, and, were, and were facaded in this religious uh, you know, pretense. But in actual fact, the Inquisition and the Crusades, historically speaking, were geopolitical wars. There was, there was much about borders and power and bloodlines and right to who owns what city and what province and what it produces than in Christianity. In fact, in, in most instances, both these were draped in a false pretense of Christianity. But again, these are pushbacks. Figure point three, uh, very well known, the Salem witch hunts. They did that. Some people claim, or some people have claimed historically, that somewhere between 40,000 and 60,000 witches were killed by the church just because they believed in something different than the church. It's often uh, talked about in popular culture. Others even want to claim, especially speaking about the European witch trials, as Carl Sagan in his book, The Demon Haunted World, uh, exemplifies that no one knows how many supposed witches the church killed altogether. Perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, perhaps billions, perhaps millions. I mean, he could just keep going because Carl Sagan is basing this on absolutely nothing. There's no evidence whatsoever to suggest these numbers are true. He's saying, well, because there's no evidence, maybe it isn't just hundreds or just thousands. Maybe it's hundreds of millions of billions of thousands, which is just absolutely insane. Again, it's not evidence-based historical fact. It's popular philosophy and opinion. And again, what happens is, is many people take their view of the world or of these historical instances from people like this. But the truth is, when you study it, again, historically speaking, the vast majority of scholars today reject this viewpoint. In fact, it was Dinesh D'Souza who said in his work on the Salem witch trials specifically, that fewer than 25 people were evidentially killed because... They were witches, men and women. Which again, 25 too many. I'm not, I'm not justifying this. This is a terrible and horrible thing. I'm just saying that many of us have built our populistic viewpoint, our worldview, off of shoddy research. Um, Mark Clark said in his book, and he's quoting Christopher Hitchens uh, in his book, says, in his book, God is not great, Christopher Hitchens contends, as his subtitle says, religion poisons everything, that the violence and hatred in our world, he says, arise almost exclusively from religion, which is not unlike racism, but is an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and hatred. His solution to this poison, Clark says, is atheism. Now, let me just take a time out and say one thing real quick. I mean, the fact that this, that this uh, atheist is, is trying to liken Christianity in particular, I mean, religion maybe 
you, you, might, you might have justification, but Christianity and racism is crazy to me. Because if you read the New Testament, the Gospels and the Pauline and Petrine epistles, then what you realize very quickly is that it's impossible. It is impossible to be a Christian by Christ's definition and to be a racist. When you believe and, and you base your Christian worldview on a, on, a, on a scripture that says all men were created equal, when, when you believe in, like Paul says in Galatians, that there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor gender, that in God's eyes we're loved and valued above all else. I mean, there's no place in, in Christian theology for a racial ethic. And the fact that he's trying to connect that is poor and, again, uh, shoddy uh, research. But again, the point he's making isn't that. This is a side note. What he's saying is the solution to the poison that religion brings is that we should all turn to atheism, which is what many in our culture have done. Perhaps even some of you sitting and watching today, you've said, you know, because of all the, all the travesties and all the bad and all the stuff that's happened, you know, I'm just going to press eject on God, eject on Christianity, eject on the church. I'm just going to become an atheist. But, but before, we, before we go, you know, well, you know, okay, fair play, conversation over. Let's, let's again, let's, let's examine evidentially and from a fact-based point of view if this, this uh, theory, if this premise, if this thesis has any legs. And to help me kind of do this, rather than taking a 500-year view of history, I'm just going to focus on not, not even the last 100, but even the last 50 to 70 years. Uh, let's examine his claim. The poison of religion and violence is to become an atheist. Well, figure point one is Pol Pot. Pol Pot, as you know, was the dictator that led Cambodia into its freedom. Uh, scholars reckon he killed, as an atheist leader, two million of his own people. Figure point two, you all know this guy, is of course is Adolf Hitler. And scholars reckon that in his uh, brief reign, he killed six million Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, Christian pastors, children with Down syndrome, people with disabilities. He just killed them on. Again, he was an atheist. Figure point three, Joseph Stalin, the leader of Russia. And again, it's a tough one because in his reign, scholars reckon somewhere between 20 to 40 million of his own people were killed. And again, many of them pastors, many of them Christians, nuns, priests, pastors, missionaries. He killed them all. I mean, he just, he just killed them. Again, he was an atheist. And of course, figure point four, Mao Zedong, who scholars reckon somewhere around 70 million of his own people were killed to achieve his political purpose. And again, what do all four of these characters have in common? Well, they rejected the church. They rejected Christianity. Most of them, because of the violence, violent past it supposedly uh, had, and were atheists. So, to kind of put this all together, the worst case scenario, if I try to tee these two theses together and put them up in a, in a, in a, in a somewhat of, a, of an academic uh, perspective, the worst case scenario for the atrocities caused in the name of Christ, and again, I have to absolutely stress, although many of those who did these things weren't Christians by Christ's definition, they were cultural Christians, but hey, we'll take it for the sake of argument, over a period of 500 years, so the Crusades, the Inquisition, the witch hunts, over a period of 500 years, the total is somewhere around 250,000 people. That's a lot of people to have died, supposedly, in the name of Christ. I'm sure some were genuine atrocities, but the vast majority were geopolitical wars. Let's flip it over and compare the alternative atheistic atrocities in the last 50 years. So the Kremer Rouge, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, in the last 50 to 70 years, scholars reckon somewhere in the region of 100 million people. 100 million people were killed by people who said, you know what, I don't like the poison of church and Christ and religion. I'm going to reject and eject that. I'm going to turn to atheism. And that atheism, that, that belief there is no God, no afterlife, no answer in this, life, no authority, no accountability, meant that they were able to extinguish and exterminate over 100 million people. And again, this is the tragic irony that so many scholars talk about. Alistair McGrath said this, the tragic irony that gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history 
is that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion causes intolerance and violence. Mark Clark went on to say, history has proven that adopting a philosophy wherein the answer to violence and oppression is less religion is a failure. He goes on in his quote, talking about Daniel Dennett, who said, he quotes Daniel Dennett, Daniel Dennett is trying to make the point in his book that because you know, people have done things in the name of Christ, in the name of God, and even though they may not be, be actual practicing Christians, but actually cultural Christians, because they use the label Christ, all Christians should take a, a, a responsibility for their acts. And he's quoting here uh, the atrocities, like such as uh, the bombing of abortion centers. Clark says, Daniel Dennett says that all Christians must bear the responsibility for abortion clinic bombings. But by the same criteria and the same logic and the same rationale, atheists, including Dennett, have to bear the responsibility for all the above atheistic atrocities. That is, over 100 million people killed in 50 to 70 years just to achieve some political and selfish point of view. So, if we're going to go tit for tat, then there has to be an admittal on both ends that maybe this isn't the best way of having this conversation. Now, fourthly, and we're going to close soon, we need an apologetic for it. The word apologetic comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a rational explanation. In a sense, this whole series is an apologetic. We're kind of trying to explain, despite all these pushbacks and all, all, the, all the obstacles, why we still believe in these things. And again, if you're in the room and you're a Christ follower, we, we, how do we respond to this in a way that makes sense? And again, if skeptics are correct in saying, I can't embrace Christianity because of its propensity to promote violence in the world. And the question we got to ask ourselves in a very open and rational way is, well, then what's the alternative? If you, if you can't embrace Christianity because there's violence in the world and people who are supposed to be good do bad things, bad things, then what's the alternative? Well, the most popular one is the one that is born out of Darwinism. And that, of course, is evolutionary theory, right? That you know, if you if you eject and reject Christianity, become an atheist, then the only real thing you can hang your hat on, so to speak, is the theory, as we covered last week, of evolution. What does Darwinism teach us? Darwinism teaches us that really the world is all about survival of the fittest, that the strongest and the biggest and the best can. As the motto goes, might makes right. If I can take from you, that's your fault. If you get left behind, that's your fault. If you were born weak or in need, and you can't, if you were born with some kind of learning disability or a physical disability, or you were born in the slums of India, hey, don't blame me. That's evolution, baby, to quote Pearl Jam. I mean, that's, that's, that's the result of of, of natural selection. That's the, that's the result of evolution. That Listen, some of us are born into wealth and status and some of us are born to slums and some of us are born one skin color and others are born the other and we shouldn't get upset with each other. We shouldn't get upset with the world because ultimately that's what evolution does. It's natural selection and the fittest and the strongest and the bravest and the best survive. I like to call natural selection natural election because when you think about it, I don't know about you, but like I remember growing up watching like like Nat Geo and Discovery Channel and watching like you know lions attacking zebras and it's like you know you watch it for a while and at first it's like amazing you watch the lion and how they can move and their speed and their agility and how they're hunting packs and and their claws their teeth and then it dawns on you you know it's pretty cool being the lion but it sucks being a zebra. I mean, come on. I mean, the zebra has no real teeth, no claws. He's not even fast. I mean, come on. He lives in the Serengeti and he's black and white. I mean, come on. I mean, who, who, who does it? I mean, how, evolution plays a cruel hand. I mean, if you're born a zebra, I mean, honest goodness. I mean, the best you can hope for life is that you outrun a lion a few times. And the point is this. According to natural selection and evolutionary theory, you don't get to choose whether or not your food are fed. You're born into it. You don't have a choice. Like zebras will always be zebras. You can't change your status. You can't overcome the obstacles because that is evolution. That's the way this thing is supposed to work. Natural selection guarantees that the survival of our species is found in the ability of the strong and the fittest to be able to reproduce and pass their genetic code into the next gene pool, which again, doesn't seem very encouraging, does it? But that's what evolution teaches. And again, ultimately, this evolutionary hierarchy of the strongest, the best, and the fittest win leads to a system of suppression where the strong and the wealthy and the famous 
will always have and those who won't don't and don't even deserve, if you follow the logic through, the whole way to its conclusion. Now, in, in, in contrast to this is Christianity. Darwinism, Christianity. Where Darwinism is characterized by survival of the fittest, Christianity is characterized by sacrifice of the fittest. The idea that the best and strongest and most well-off amongst us should become our, our servant, should become the least, should follow in the example of Christ in being willing to sacrifice for the sake of everyone else. It's an unnatural selection. It's unnatural that God would choose us, that God would call out to us, that God, even though we may not want him or like him or appreciate him or, 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 or anything, that, that he would still offer us the opportunity to be in relationship with him. And again, this leads to an unnatural election, that God is gracious, that God is full of mercy, that God does not judge us, that God is not a hypocrite, that God is not angry with us, but that God welcomes us to himself, doubts, flaws, and all other things that are attached to us. And again, we see this best demonstrated an example of Jesus washing his disciples' feet in John's Gospel. This idea that God, you know, it, it says in the Gospel of John that as Jesus, it was in full control of all of his authority. And again, stay with me if you're an atheist or an unbeliever. Like if Jesus really was God, and he was fully aware of all of his authority to create and make and speak and all these things, when, when all of the fullness of God's authority was available to him, what was the first thing he did? Well, the first thing he did was he took off all status, all power. He disrobed himself and took the posture of a servant. And he got down on his hands and knees. And his disciples were so embarrassed by this that Peter even refused to happen. But Jesus had to convince him that to continue, to be, to, that to, to continue following him, he had to allow him, Jesus that is, to wash his feet. You see, ultimately the gospel creates a system not of suppression, but a system of submission. That Christians, in their heart of hearts, are supposed to be people who are submitted to God and in love and service to those around them, are submitted to the world around them. And there's so many examples. I know there's so many bad examples in history people who are called Christian, but there's also many great examples. Scientifically, uh, in the human rights domain, uh, hist historically speaking, of people who, because of their faith, were willing to sacrifice everything to serve other people. For example, William Wilberforce, who sacrificed his status, his political career, his home, his wealth, his friendships. He would not give up on the belief that God created all men equal and advocate for over 30 years for the abolition of slavery. He gave himself to the service of others. Now again, as we, as we kind of get through this, again, I, I can hear the voice of people saying, well, you know, that, that sounds good, and okay, you know, evolution's harsh, and okay, maybe it's not cool being the zebra, and maybe, okay, maybe you're, maybe you're starting to convince me a little bit, Jenny, about this whole Christianity thing, but you know what? You know, at the end of the day, that's your truth, and I have my truth. And again, this is where the, the kind of wheels come off, because we live in a postmodern era, and we live in a, in a time of what's called postmodern relativism. We live in a day and age where people believe that dogmatic truth, like total truth, absolute truth, is dangerous. We believe in, a, in an era where, we live in an era, sorry, people believe that truth is subjective. That you can have your truth and I can have my truth. That, that, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And that's a dangerous thing because, because if, if there's no absolute truth, there's no capital T truth, which I believe, of course, there is. And I believe our culture right now is hungry for truth. I believe people are looking for truth because this subjective version of truth isn't working. It's failing us because whose truth gets to be more truth than the other person's truth? And it's very confusing and it's very divisive and it's causing a lot of conflict. And this has come out of, of course, of a, of a couple of hundred years of Enlightenment thinkers and, and philosophers such as Friedrich Nietzsche, who basically believed in this subjective, post-relative, post-modern version of truth, that there is no absolute truth. But C.S. Lewis, in response to this, in his book, The Abolition of Man, he said, you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you've explained your own explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something 
is to see something else through it. I mean, at some point, something may be a metaphor and a subjective truth, but there, it must be a window, a vessel to see something through it. It is good, he says, that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How, if you saw through the garden, too, you'd see nothing. If you see through everything, he says, then everything is transparent, but a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. It's a world that we cannot connect with, that we cannot live in. To see through all things is the same as not to see. And again, at this point, I can hear it. Skeptics are going, pushing back, going, hang on, hang on, hang on. You know, what about the work of Freud and, and, and his rebuttal of all this? And uh, Mark Clark in his book quotes Freud on this. He says, Sigmund Freud argued that all truth claims, all, tr- all truth claims are a result of guilt and insecurity. So you're going, hey, you know what, Jim, that sounds great, but you know what, this is because you need God as some kind of crutch, like there's a weakness in you, or you have, you know, people who have God, you just, you just, they're not able to stand on their own two feet, which again, proves the point of survival of the fittest, right? But, uh, but uh, Clark, quoting Freud, says, and that any statement of our belief about God, therefore, needs to be abandoned, right? And he goes on to say, if Freud is right, then we must not listen to Freud either, quite ironically, since, by his own definition, his truth that God doesn't exist must arise from Freud's own guilt and insecurity. I mean, if truth is subjective, then you can't believe those who teach subjective truth because the truth they teach is subjective. But we know with something in us knows that's not true. Something in us knows that's not enough. There has to be something true and real in the world that permeates the metaphysical experience and, and transcends time because something in our deep within our soul understands or witnesses or has an echo or a thumbprint of something beyond just what is seen in the physical sense. Which brings me to my last point as we close. We need an application for it. So where do we go from here? Well, here's what we believe. Ultimately speaking, as we think about hypocrisy, as we try to dismantle some of the populistic views while also taking responsibility, where responsibility is duly supposed to be taken hold of. Truth is not an ideology. Truth is not a principle. Truth is not a philosophy. Truth is not religion. Truth is not Christianity. Truth is not even the church, what scholars call trivial objection. No, truth, we believe, is a person. We can hang our hat on is not the followers of the truth, but the founder of the truth. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus said of himself in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And this verse is so, is so striking because this, this verse and how Jesus taught about the gospel is what makes Jesus so different from any other world religion. Because whereas other world religions you know, propagate themselves as messengers, as prophets, as, as, as images, as shadows, as examples. Jesus was so unique in comparison to any other religion because he said, I, it's me, I'm it, I am truth, I am the way, I am the gospel, I am the power, I am the hope, I am the help, I am the healing, and no one can come to the Father except through me, which of course might have been a great thing while he was alive, but was very inconvenient when he died. And of course, when Jesus died, all of his followers, because they were hypocrites, surprise, surprise, abandoned him. And it wasn't until his half-hearted, hypocritical followers saw a resurrected Jesus alive before them that they believed in the truth. See, real Christians aren't people who are born or raised or culturally Christian in nature. Real Christians are ordinary people called to an extraordinary purpose in Christ. Real Christians are people who are, who are following the capital T truth found in the person of Jesus. Real Christians have devoted their lives to love and serve and reach and bless and give and submit and surrender themselves in love to the world around them. In conclusion, it's like the uh, author and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it's as if their own needs and their own distresses were not enough Yes, they're hypocrites. Yes, they're imperfect. Yes, this group. But like, as if their own needs and their own distress were not enough, they, they, as in Christians, take upon themselves the distress and humiliation 
and sin of others. Why? Because that's what Christ did. And Bonhoeffer, he could say that, he could make that claim because Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, died in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany in 1945 because he would not stay silent. He would not give in to the malevolent dictator that was Adolf Hitler and died in a camp with his fellow brothers and sisters living for the value that Christ does not abandon the broken. Why? Because the gospel is true. Why? Because the gospel is worth the cost. And if I had more time, I could go on and talk about so many other men and women who not only did great things for our world because of their faith in Christ, but were willing to die, many, because they understood that the true measure of Christianity isn't in religiosity or, or cultural version of faith, but it's following Jesus. So my question to you today is, have you rejected the right version of Christianity? Or maybe the thing you've rejected is the popularistic cultural version of Christianity. And if you really are someone who believes you've staked your life on moral relativism and Darwinism and atheism, think about, think about some of the things that we, we, we talked about today. And if, and if you're someone who's right now open, why not consider putting your trust in Jesus? Why not consider seeing if this thing is the real thing for yourself and taking a step of faith? Maybe in your not being a hypocrite, but being willing and being open-minded to even Jesus, maybe you'll find the truth for yourself. And that truth we believe can set you free. Amen? I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind. Let's just stand together. I want to pray as the band comes. And I want to pray that wherever we are right now on this journey, or whatever part of what I've said connect with you, I also want to pray that God, that the light of God's wisdom and the light of God's Holy Spirit would shine in our hearts and give us hope and help and healing today. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you that you are a good God. And even though some of us in this room doubt that and perhaps even resent that, I thank you, God, that if it's true, we all need that. That in this room today are men and women who are broken. They're not perfect. They're not, they're not perfect people, Lord. None of us are. They're ordinary people. But I thank you that in you we have the extraordinary opportunity today to reach up and reach out, to touch heaven as heaven touches earth, and to experience for ourselves in our own hearts the hope, the help, and the healing that comes from accepting the truth that is in Christ. Thank you for all my friends who are here who are skeptics and who are questioning and wondering, bless their journey, bless their curiosity today, Lord. And for those who may be open today to follow you, may they put their trust wholeheartedly in you. And for the rest of us who have been following you, God, help us to follow you well, like Bonhoeffer, like Wilberforce, and to be a, a force of blessing and love and service in this world. And not to be, as some of our historical brothers and sisters have been, the opposite. We pray for wisdom. We pray for direction and guidance. We pray for your presence right now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's sing this song together.